You may recall last week as we were looking at um, that final few verses, um, verses 10 and 11 in Philippians chapter 3, we considered them relatively briefly really and I said we'd be looking at that in a little bit more detail this morning and that's what we're going to do uh, to lead us into verses 12 to 21 which are going to be the main thrust of what we're going to be looking at this morning and uh, for those of you who weren't perhaps with us last Sunday morning it might help if we just go back slightly to, to begin at verse 10 and then pick things up from there. One of the helpful things in doing that, of course, is that all of these truths that we're looking at as we go through systematically, they're all linked together. This is part of one letter. And so it it has a a, a unity to the whole thing. And uh, we can sometimes forget that as we look at individual little sections. Um, One thing I would encourage you to do Uh, from time to time as we go through these series, particularly these shorter letters where it's actually quite easy to just sit down and read the whole letter through in one sitting. Uh, Perhaps do that from time to time and uh, see how the whole flow of the letter actually works. That's something that we we lose slightly when we just look at little sections week by week. So uh, I recommend you do that sometime. Just read back through the whole letter from from the very beginning. It's good to examine bits in detail, but don't forget it's all part of one bigger picture. Well, Paul is really speaking from verse 10 about the subject of sanctification. Now, what we mean by that big word is the ongoing walk of the Christian believer and our growing and our progressing in faith and in knowing Christ and in our love for Christ and and our love for his church and about growing in holiness and godliness and everything that contributes to becoming more Christ-like in our lives. That I may know him, says Paul. Not because he doesn't already know Christ, of course he does. Christ met him in the most remarkable way, remember, on the Damascus Road. And in a unique way, as the apostle born out of due time... The Apostle Paul has had unique uh, communion with Christ and revelation from Christ in his preparation for his apostolic ministry. So it's not that he doesn't already know Christ. He's talking about growing in the knowledge of Christ. Paul realises that Christ is so wonderful to know, he longs to know him even more. He's not satisfied with the knowledge that he already has. Something which he often says is the focus of his prayers for all Christians. Have a quick glance back, if you like, at verse 9 of the opening chapter. And he longs that all Christians would keep on growing in their knowledge and love for Christ. Well, how do you get to know someone better? Well, there's nothing like spending time with them. You let them speak to you. And open themselves to you. You speak to them. And ask questions of them if you wish. Getting to know Christ is not a mystical thing. Getting to know Christ is not an abstract thing. Every single one of you here can get to know Christ better. If you want to. 
Some religions espouse emptying your mind, but Christians are to do the opposite. We have renewed minds, and those renewed minds are to be filled with God's truth, and supremely with the truth and knowledge of Jesus Christ. He's a real person, and he's revealed himself to you in two particular ways that are most helpful he's revealed himself to you through the bible and he's revealed himself to you through the work of his spirit who he has sent to dwell in you and these aren't two disconnected things the word and the spirit work together they always work together god the spirit leads you to and into the truth of the word And the Spirit will never contradict the Word. He can't. He's the one who inspired it in the first place. In the Word of God, you'll find everything that you need in order to know Christ. And then you have the place of prayer, where again you have the agency of God's Spirit working, where you can get to know Him and commune with Him. And God has also given us things like the sacrament of the Lord's table, whereby all of our worship together as his body is focused and centred upon the Lord Jesus Christ and supremely in his death and remembering that he rose again and that that table is to to be remembered until he comes because he's coming again. You need to use these means of grace all given to you by God that you might know Christ and know him better and grow in your knowledge and love of him. And it will then follow on from that that you will know his power and his directing in your life. The very same power that raised Jesus from the dead, knowing him in his resurrection, the same power that raised Christ from the dead is the power that's at work in you. Christ was raised by the power of the Holy Spirit and that same Spirit indwells every believer. But you cannot know his power and his directing if you are neglecting the word and prayer. Don't hope to know Christ outside of the Bible and prayer. Don't hope to know Christ better outside of the Bible and prayer because that is where you get to know him and if you have to confess well, I probably really don't know Christ the way I should after all these years well maybe you just need to before the Lord address the time and the effort that you put into getting to know the word and before him in prayer. And if you're growing like this, it was Paul's experience and testimony uh, that it brought great suffering that he had to endure. It was his knowledge of Christ that brought great suffering into his life. But he clearly sees that that is actually something desirable, amazingly. It's not something to be avoided. The more Paul got to know Christ the more he suffered. 
And it's desirable because it's a mark of being a faithful disciple of Christ. It's a mark of one who's following in the steps of your saviour and master that you end your suffering just like he suffered. And as Paul grew in these things, so did his obedience. But so also did his compassion for those who don't yet know Christ. And so did his longing for Christ's church to be established and his willingness to make sacrifices for the cause of the gospel and his resolve to stand up for God's truth and preach the gospel regardless of the consequences as he grew to know his saviour more and more. And it all came as a great personal cost to Paul but he just considered it to be an unbelievable privilege that God would use him at all as his instrument in this world. And he says, doesn't he, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. And as I reminded you last week, uh, this is not a, an, an area of doubt that Paul is so suddenly and strangely introducing into what he's saying. Uh, let me just remind you what, we, what I mentioned last week. Paul's talking here about this doctrine that's been called the perseverance of the saints. And it goes like this, number one. All Christians will complete the race that God gives them to run because they are secure in Christ. If you're in Christ, you'll never again be out of Christ. That's the teaching of the Bible. But those same Christians at the same time give themselves to the running of the race. So we have these two things working hand in hand and side by side. If you're a Christian, you will complete the race that God has given you to run. Because you are in Christ. But you must also give yourself to the running of the race. God will not sit you down in the morning and open your Bible for you. You have to do it. You have to give yourself to the running of the race, you see. So Paul isn't suggesting in verse 11 that his attaining to this resurrection of the dead... In other words, being raised to everlasting life at Christ's return. He's not suggesting that that's in doubt. And he's not suggesting that he does, after all, have to earn it. He's simply saying that whatever it takes, whatever it costs, he is going to complete the race. Because the joy and the glory that will follow will far surpass any suffering that he's had to endure. And the riches of being with Christ for all eternity will far exceed all the losses that he's had in this life. And as we find ourselves mulling through these things in our own minds, as Paul continues, he provides us with three points to help us. So look at verses 12 to 16. And in these verses, you'll see exertion exertion Paul uses the well-known and easily easily understood analogy of the athlete he wants us to see that conversion is not the be-all and end-all conversion is the starting gun if you want to maintain the athletics illustration and now you must give yourself to running the race toward the finishing tape you are saved if you are a Christian. But there's more to your salvation than just conversion. There's a race to be run and there's a prize to be received. 
then your salvation will be in all its completeness and in all of its fullness. Jesus said that he must return to the Father to prepare a place for his followers. That is our, your final destination. To be forever with Christ in that place that he's prepared for you. But you're not there yet. And that is where and when you will enter into the final fullness of your salvation. Think of it like this. Think of the crew on a ship and the ship is sinking and they've been plucked off that sinking vessel by a helicopter or a lifeboat. They have been saved, but their rescue is only complete once they put their feet on dry land. Our rescuer, makes putting our feet on dry ground absolutely certain, but we're not there yet. That's the meaning of the opening phrase in verse 12. Note Paul's language. I press on. Verse 14, I press toward. And verse 13, reaching forward. These are words of activity. These are words of intent. These are words of commitment. These are words of decision. The word press actually means to pursue. You've set your eye on something. You've got all your ambitions set on something. You have your heart set on something. Some of you this morning are pursuing many things. Many of them are legitimate things to pursue. But above all else, Paul encourages us here, you must be pursuing Christ. Your pursuit of Christ must be the number one pursuit in your life. Have other pursuits, but let none of them come above the pursuit of Christ. Have you seen those pictures of a cat? And regardless of the size of the cat, whether it's the moggy in your back garden, right through to a tiger, have you seen them as they're crouching down with their eye on the prey? They all, they all behave in the same way. So all they see is the thing they're after. Everything else is just, whoa, it's gone. Single-minded focus and determination. I press on. That's the language Paul is using. And the reaching forward, the reaching forward isn't reaching, it's reaching. That's the word he uses. Reaching forward is the language of Paul. Give yourself to it. Put all your energies and your resources into it. Plan your time. So that you can use the means of grace that God has given you to do. Rather than just finding if you can possibly squeeze it in. Make those things your priority and build everything else around it. Self-control is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. Control yourself to use the means of God's grace above all things, and use them for these purposes, to get to know Christ. In verse 12, again, we see these 
we see these two parallel lines of truth regarding the Christian life, you see. Number one, says Paul, Christ has laid hold of me. That's a wonderful place to be. Christ has laid hold of me. If you're a Christian, Christ holds you firm and tenderly in his hand. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. There is nothing and no one that can snatch you out of his hand. But number two, says Paul, that I also may lay hold. It's a two-way thing. There's two truths running parallel. Christ laying hold of me, and on account of him laying hold of me, I must also lay hold. So the Christian, you see, Jesus has laid hold of me. End of story? No. Press on, that you may lay hold, Paul teaches. Twin tracks along which the Christian life runs. Saying more about this in a moment. In verse 13, Paul is not suggesting in that verse that we are just to completely forget about everything in our past and never remember any of it. In part, he's taking us back to verses 7 and 8. And reminding us that we're never to return to those things which we once thought counted for something, but we've discovered count for nothing. If you've discovered that those things count for nothing, you're not going to go back to them, are you? Forget those things which lie behind. And he's also reminding us surely that when you do think about the past, do not let any of the bad things that happened have an influence upon your today. Now, That's easier said than done. Without the grace and power of God, for some people, it's a pretty grim thing to tell them to just forget about your past. Because their past is pretty rotten. And devastating and big things have happened in their past. But you see, the Bible teaches us that with the grace and power of God, All things become possible. Now the Bible doesn't say that all things become easy. The Bible doesn't promise that all things will become pleasant. But it does say that you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. And especially if you keep looking forward to what lies ahead. And this is one of the things that the apostles are always emphasizing. The prize of the upward call in Christ. Now, this is one of the things that keeps Paul pressing on. Because he never takes his eye off what's going to happen down there. This life is just a brief moment in the light of eternity. And I'm pressing on towards that. These difficulties that I'm facing, they will be completely overwhelmed by the glories of heaven. So I'm pressing on for that, despite the difficulties that this puts me in. The Bible uses the picture, doesn't it, of the mother, it's easy for a man to say, the mother who's in childbirth and the pain of childbirth is almost overwhelming. 
She wishes she could stop and not have to carry on, but she does carry on. But that pain is soon forgotten because of the joy that she's overwhelmed with as she holds her baby in her hands. And so all the, all the treasures that this world offers us, they count as nothing when placed alongside the prospect of being with Christ forever. And so Paul says, keep looking forward, keep looking ahead, keep remembering where it is you're going. This will be such a big thing in helping you to press on, to know Christ, and to be the Christian you should be. And verse 14 is a wonderful verse. It says two things. It says, you are pressing toward the goal. And it also says, God is waiting to give you the prize. Now, the goal that you are pressing toward and the prize that God is waiting to give you are the same thing. They're the same thing. It's the completion of your salvation. It's the ultimate perfecting that will come to you. And it's seen in two perspectives here. William Hendrickson, the Bible commentator and teacher, puts this very helpfully. He says this, this one thing, this final completing of our salvation when we're with Christ, as the goal, it's the object of human striving. I'm striving towards it. But as the prize, it's the gift of God's sovereign grace. Now, some people will stand back from verses like this and say, hang on, hang on. It can't be both. What is it? Is it something that I strive towards or is it something that God gives as a gift? It can't be both. But the Bible says, no, actually, it is both. This is divine wisdom. This is the way that God has designed the Christian life to be. It is the gift that God waits to give you. But, says Paul, I strive to get there. It's not one or the other. It's both. Once again, we have these two parallel tracks that run side by side. And clearly, a train can only stay on the track when both rails are there, when both rails are parallel, and when both rails remain firmly fixed together. One rail is called God's sovereignty in grace and power. He's doing it all. He is. He's doing it all. But the other track, the other rail, is my responsibility and your responsibility to live the way God calls you to live. This is how God has designed the Christian life to work. These two things running side by side. I'm striving to reach that goal. Yes. But God also is going to give me that thing as a gift because of his grace and his love. And Paul in verses 15 and 16 simply exhorts the Philippians to think like this. That's the exhortation there in those verses. You need to be thinking like this. And so this exhortation comes to all Christians in every church, in every age and generation. 
Think like this. Look at how the Apostle Paul thought and think like him. Look at how the Apostle Paul reasoned his Christian life to be and think and reason like him. To be like-minded with Paul, to be single-minded like Paul and that all of us would be of one mind together in these truths. And Paul also says there, doesn't he, that he is confident that anyone in the church who's struggling to understand these truths and apply them will be brought to the position of this truth because this is God's truth and this is the truth that God's spirit will bring you to. That's his conclusion in verses 15 and 16. Think like Paul. Go home and begin to read this letter through from the beginning again. And just pray this simple prayer. Lord, give me Paul's mind. Give me Paul's attitude. Give me Paul's heart. Give me Paul's desires. Because I know Paul never used to have any of these things. You did this. You did it in Paul. Lord, do it in me. If you did it in Paul, you can do it in me. Let me start to think and reason like Paul. Because that leads us on to the second point, which is verses 17 to 19, which is example. Which of us here would dare to say what Paul said? Which of us here would come and stand at the front and say, you want to be a good Christian? You want to be an obedient Christian? You want to be a faithful Christian? You want to be an effective Christian? Come and spend a month with me and just do what I do. Would anyone like to come and offer to say that? My hand's not up, it's just offering a place. But Paul could. Such is the special man of God that he is and the position that God has given him in the life of the Christian church. But he lays out this very simple point. And just because we might think, oh no, I could never do that, let's not think that we should not want to attain to this. How crucial this is in the life of the church. Example. Example. We need new Pauls in every generation so that the generation after it may follow the same pattern. That's Paul's great desire. Now, of course, when I say we need new Pauls, I'm not suggesting we need more apostles. They've been and gone and done their work. Theirs was a unique appointment. But we need consistent, faithful patterns within the church for people to follow. One of the main things which brings discord and disunity in churches is when there are all kinds of differing and conflicting examples within the church. And people don't know who to follow or who to listen to. Because every, every voice is saying a different thing and every life is living a different way. That's just going to bring chaos into a church. And Paul urges us as Christian people in a local church like the Philippians were. Be like-minded in all of these things. <coughs> Strive for this consistency of Christian living and example amongst yourselves. So that the generation that follow have a sound pattern to lead them.
because then he talks about all the errors that there's been and we know from the scriptures don't we there have been people who were in the church and people thought they were part of the church they thought they were members of the church and they proved not to be and the, the New Testament period is awash with false teachers and heresies just as it has been in every age and Paul is aware that there are all of these bad examples that people might follow and he knows so they need good examples in the church and the same is true today for us there need to be good examples now what what does this cover it covers everything well let's just think let's just take it down a few different uh, a few different types of issues let's begin with the more obvious things so for example things like talking about consistency of example now within the life of a church here's a member or a group of members who just always seem to be at every meeting that the church ever hold but there's this one or two or three or however many it is it always happens in a church well we're lucky if we see them once a week but they're at everything there's inconsistency of example we say I, I can't remember the last time she was not at a prayer meeting I don't know whether that person even knows we hold a prayer meeting. I can remember the last time we saw them there. And there's inconsistency in example within the church. There's other things, isn't there? Uh, this person, quite regularly on a Sunday after one of the services, they'll come and talk to me about spiritual things. All they want to come and ask me is if I've heard the football scores. There's inconsistency of example within the life of a church. This person wants to know if I'm making progress in running the race. This person just wants to talk, me, talk to me about the latest smartphone. There's an inconsistency of example within the Christian church. This person came and visited me when I was sick. I don't think they even know where I live. This person's understanding of the Bible seems to be growing all the time. This person seems to be becoming more and more in tune with God when I hear them pray on a Wednesday. They're the ones who give up their holidays so that they can serve the Lord on beach missions. And here's a home that, well, most of the things seem to be really quite, quite a modest lifestyle in their home. And here's another home. Well, it's just awash with all the evidences of an inability to stop buying the latest everything. This works out in all kinds of areas. And then, and then there's the things that only God sees and that only God knows. What kind of person you are in your quiet times with him or whether you have any quiet times at all. How much time you give to studying and learning the Bible so that you can get to know Christ better. How you handle your finances and manage your time. The sacrifices you're making being a good neighbour in your street and a good witness at work. 
how you parent and discipline your children in the home as a Christian parent and how that might differ to others in the church. All of these things in every sphere of life which are all part and parcel of our running the race. And Paul is saying for all of these things, young Christians need reliable, consistent examples to follow in the life of the church. Paul is able to hold himself up as such an example. We should pray for one another that we could do likewise. The importance of example in the life of a church. And then there's finally exaltation. There's exaltation. And this is from verse 20 through to 21. And and Paul encourages the believers here to remember your citizenship. Remember to whom you belong. You are no longer your own. And so if you haven't already done so, maybe it's time to stop living as if you are still your own. Because you're a citizen of heaven. You're a citizen of Christ's kingdom, a citizen of God's kingdom, says Paul. Remember these things. If you're going to press on, remember who you belong to and where your home is. You see, as Christians, you've been removed from this world's system of values and priorities. Put it another way, as a Christian, you dance to a different tune to all the people around you in the world. Have you seen those military parades and all the soldiers are marching together? And uh, this is particularly noticeable when sometimes they wear white gloves on their hands. And, And in the middle of the ranks of soldiers, there's one who's out of step. And all these white gloves are going like this. And there's one that's going the wrong way. And it stands out like a white hand. He's out of step. He's doing the opposite to all the others. Remember where your citizenship lies, says Paul. Because you're to be obviously out of step with the world. You're going to be in the thick of it, but you need to be out of step with it as a believer. Because this is not this world is not where your citizenship lies. You're Christ's. That's why you're striving to him and for him. Because you're Christ's. He's laid hold of you. Why would you not lay hold of him in your life? In every sphere of life. One of the best possible motivators for the Christian to discount the things of this world in order to live out and out for Christ is to remember that which lies ahead. Now we've Paul's mentioned it already and he mentions it again. Christ is going to return. The day is coming when your body is going to be gloriously transformed to be exactly the same as the body that the Lord Jesus Christ has now. The day is coming. It's going to happen. You will be raised and exalted to be with Christ forever. The Bible actually says that believers will reign with him 
for all eternity. Now Christ has already been exalted to the highest place. And the day is coming, we've seen it in chapter 2, when at the name of Jesus every knee will bow and he's going to be exalted even higher in a sense that we're going to be exalted with him, not like he is, but we'll be exalted with him. Jesus spoke of those who humble themselves before God as being exalted, lifted up from the depths of sin to become a child of God. Now there's exaltation for you, of a glorious kind. It's the kind of exaltation that only God can do in the life of a sinner. This isn't self-exaltation. I need to be clear on this point. This is not us exalting ourselves. This is a glorious, gracious exalting that God brings to sinners, that God does for sinners. You become and you are a joint heir with Christ. You have an inheritance with him for all eternity. We have this blessed hope. We have this glorious future with him. Why would you not be like that person in the parable who sold everything in order to buy the field and possess the treasure? Why would you not abandon all the other pearls that you've been amassing in order to have this one pearl of greatest price? You see, when you begin to think like Paul thinks, when you begin to have the kind of heart that Paul has, oh, that each of us might be like him and see in his Christian example that which we need, then pressing on is the most obvious and natural thing to do. That I may lay hold of that which God has waiting for me. Paul's exhortation to each of us is simple and direct. To follow his example. Press on. Look forward. Because Christ is coming.